Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and with me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how's it feel to uh, be back in the United States? Uh, it feels good. I feel like we were there uh, long enough, and we we're kind of starting getting ready to come home. So I'm glad to be here, and teaching this round of classes has been fun. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. Cool. You already started, huh? I don't start yeah. for another week or so. But. I do have a funny story from class uh, about uh, ceviche, actually. Oh, can't wait. You told me, right, to try it out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in class the other night, I, during the break, I asked people to get to know their neighbor and just like one thing about them. And some random people then share this random stuff. And, and one person s- said that their favorite food was ceviche. And when they said that, I said, hmm. Uh yeah, I have I have no idea what that is. What what is that? And they're like, Really? You don't know what that is? Blah blah blah. So they were telling me and then <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but someone in the class was like, Um Nathan uh told you about ceviche on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, Isn't that weird? I get that I get that similar stuff too. Yeah. My mm-hmm. my classroom students who I've I'll have never met them before. But then they'll know so much about me because of the podcast. They'll be asking me questions about my life and stuff. Yeah, yeah. They, they. Someone just told me that the other night too. They're like, it's, it's a little, it's a little creepy because I, I feel like I know you so well. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm getting to know these people, so that's exciting and that's great. But I probably don't know them as well as they know me. Yeah, is- strange, huh? You're at a disadvantage. Today on the show, we have a bunch of questions from listeners. Um, they are about admissions. They are about law school rankings. They're about what to do when you visit a law school. And we'll probably do one question from the June 2007 LSAT. We've been working through logical reasoning questions, as you know. Yeah. Um, does that sound good, Ben? Anything else you want to chat about? No, no, that's it. All right, let's, let's dig into it. So here's a letter that says, Nathan and Ben, first off, Let me say that you both through this podcast have helped change the trajectory of my life. I'm in my early 30s and just now moving on to law school. I originally studied for the June 2014 LSAT using a few of the more questionable books out there and came away after a bad test day with a 147. After finding your podcast and taking your advice on study methods, I was able to score a 165 in February this year which was beyond even my practice scores. Thank you both so much for your insights. It literally changed my life. Wow. Uh, yeah, so you can see why we include this uh, letter in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, did I did I write that well enough? That- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good job. Ben. Um, I say this a lot, you know, that, that improving your LSAT score by a significant amount can literally change your life. And I mean, I believe that to be true, right? I mean, this reader or this listener was gonna with a 147. You're basically you basically should not go to law school. Yeah. And with a 165, you're gonna get into fantastic schools. You're gonna get really good scholarship offers. All sorts of good stuff's gonna happen. So, yeah. I mean, work hard, get the right materials, improve your score. Great things can happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit. This uh, listener has a first choice law school that's ranked somewhere in the thirties and other schools in the area aren't ranked nearly that high. So more like 
schools in the around 100 range. Mm -hmm. With that background, what are some things I can do to improve the likelihood of getting scholarship money? My plan is to apply this fall, and I'm wondering how much leverage scholarship offers from schools ranked significantly lower would even be. Moving isn't ideal, so I don't disrupt my family. Thanks. Call me John or something way cooler like Torvald. So I figured we'd go with Torvald for this list. Okay. <laughs> sound good? That sounds great. Okay. So my initial reaction to this um, is coming from something that Zachary Kalo said a long time ago, and that is that law schools are primarily competing with law schools that are nearby. Um, that's not necessarily true, of course, for the top 14 or schools that are aiming for a national reach. But most law schools out there, uh, including the ones that are ranked in the 30s, are competing with schools that are nearby. They know all about them. Uh, they are competing for the same students typically. And so I think that he was saying that schools are more likely to offer scholarships when you're writing them and saying, hey, I'm really interested in your neighboring school, the one that's just down the street here or in the neighboring town, um, but I want to go to yours as well. Can we talk about some scholarship stuff? So are these schools nearby would be one question that I'd have. The second reaction that I have is that he's talking about a school that's ranked in the in the 30s and schools that are ranked in more like 100. So even if they are nearby, my worry would be that the, the 30 school would might just not care about them as much. But I think what Zach was saying is that locality matters a lot. So there probably is still some competition even between a 30 and a 100. I would think the same thing. I would, you have to think about the school that's ranked 30th, you know, what are they going to consider a legitimate, credible competing offer? Yeah. And so a, I would think any school that's in their backyard, they would believe that you're going to go there. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if it is a school that's ranked 100th, if you're like, Hey, I applied to, you know, to take, let's see, uh, let's go specifics, San Francisco, Hastings mm -hmm. is ranked like whatever 50th. Um, mm -hmm. you know, USF is ranked like a hundredth. They're in the exact same city. I would think that Hastings would definitely look at an offer from USF as a competing offer, even though USF is nowhere near where Hastings is in the rankings. Um, mm -hmm. because it's in the same city, they know that the people who are applying to Hastings are likely to also feel comfortable going to USF. Yeah. As far as the ranking difference is concerned then, yeah, I think we don't think it makes that big of a difference. Yeah. I think because it's in the 30s. So, yeah. like if it were in the, obviously in the 14s, that would matter a yeah. lot more. One thing here that I think Torvald isn't thinking about is, I get it that you don't want to move your family, but the law schools don't necessarily know whether you would move or not, right? Yeah. And so you don't have to tell if there's only one you know school that you really want to go to, you don't have to declare your love for them you know, right off the bat. And you can keep your options open by applying to a wide range of schools, even consider applying to schools that you wouldn't even go to. Yeah. Um, does that sound, is that like unethical or something? I don't think it is. 
No, because I do think there's always the possibility that you will change your mind. I mean, who knows what happens when these schools get back to you and uh, the schools in your area say, hey, look, we'll accept you, but we're not offering any scholarship offers for X, Y, Z reasons. Who knows? And some random school that you weren't really considering because you weren't really considering moving, uh, but you considered enough to apply to or at least <laughs> put in the time and effort to apply to. And they come back and they say, hey, look, we'll give you, I don't know, $40,000 or something or $10,000 a semester or however they do it a year, I guess. And um, you say, you know what, given my options now and maybe some things have changed in my life and I'm more open to the idea of moving, I'm going there. I would have never planned it. And it would have never been a possibility had I not applied, but now I'm going to go. So that's one reason to do it, even if you think you won't. But even if you know for sure that there is no way in the world that you're going to go there, use it as leverage. Right? Yeah, I absolutely. So and, you know, you could even think about it in terms of getting um, comps for yourself, like get comparable offers just to see what you're worth. Uh, yeah. to make sure that you're getting a good deal at the school you're going to. So let's say, you know, this school is ranked 30th. It's a major public research institution in a big city, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of schools that are like that all across the country. There's a ton of schools that are ranked, you know, anywhere between 15 and 40 in a major city, big, big, mm -hmm. you know, big university. You can find those kinds of schools all over the place. So, mm -hmm. Even if you don't want to move your family out of X town, why not apply to, I would apply to like beautiful places all around the country <laughs> and then, and just to get those comps in, right? I mean, mm -hmm. don't you want to see if UCLA makes you a nice offer? Yeah. One, you might take it. Two, you might be able to use it as negotiating leverage against the school that you actually do want to go to. Mm-hmm. Because it is a national school in particular. Sure. Yeah. So that's, I guess this is the same thing that we're always saying, right? Apply broadly, pick a big basket of schools to apply to and apply early and broadly and then just see what happens. Yeah. I, it, I got the sense here reading Torvald's email that he was kind of looking for permission to only apply to one school or something like he's, He's doing a little like, well, are they even going to look at these other offers? <laughs> I hear that a lot from students who don't want to do the work of like actually applying to a, to 10 schools or 15 schools because mm -hmm. uh, it is a pain in the ass. But uh, boy, does it pay off. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, one other thing here is I would definitely add to that and say um, apply broadly. And I think this is what you're saying as well. But that means to a variety of places around the country as well as maybe uh, several schools to the city or cities that you want to go to most so that even if you don't want to go to some of those law schools in that city, you can use that law school to to try to get into a law school in that city that you want to go to, this whole locality thing that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, of course. If you, you know, if um, you wanted to go to UC Irvine or whatever, you would be an idiot not to apply also to UCLA and USC and, you know, a bunch of the private schools around in that area because you want to just get comp competing offers from schools around in that same area for leverage and to judge your own worth. 
Mm-hmm. And because you might end up deciding that one of those offers is surprisingly, you know, better than you thought and you might end up taking it. So yeah, yeah, I would I would certainly apply wherever your number one school is, I would apply to the five next closest schools geographically, almost no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, just to make sure that you have all the local comps covered. Mm-hmm. And then I would be thinking about maybe stretching a little bit, reaching a little bit, applying to schools that are the same ranking as the one you really want to go to, um, or maybe even a little higher and apply to 10 of those across the country and see what happens. Sure. Um, okay. Anything else on that one? No. All right. Here's another letter getting kind of a lot of these messages this time of year. Um, cause the rankings just came out. Yeah. Um, hello. I'm writing this email to get your opinion on where I should go for law school. I recall your podcast where you say not to place too much emphasis on your law school dropping a few ranks. My number one law school was Brooklyn Law School, where I've already been accepted, which was ranked 78th. However, they have dropped to 97th. Normally, I'd take your advice. However, dropping 19 places seems substantial, and the school is dangerously close to not being in the top 100. I have other offers, so would it be better to look at those, or should I stick with my number one choice? Thank you, Mohammed. Mohammed, yeah. So I wouldn't, I would be concerned about Brooklyn Law School, not because it's dangerously close to being in the top 100. There is no magic number that all of a sudden makes the schools worthless. This is a, this is a, a scale that's slowly, slowly dropping. Oh, I guess there is a point. As I said in the last podcast, if it's like the bottom fifty, <laughs> I don't think they should exist anymore. But that's just that's 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 my view on those those schools. But the difference between ninety seven and one hundred and five is nothing. What matters here, I think, is the fact that Brooklyn Law School, and this is just something I just looked up right before we started this podcast. It went from uh, sixty to seventy eight in two thousand fourteen. So it went from 60 to 78th, and then it just went from 78th to 97th. And the reason for this, I mean, one thing is this could just be, oh, rankings are going up and down. It's a weird formula, whatever. But the the explanation that they're giving is that they didn't provide their employment numbers were dropping, and they didn't provide them to U.S. News and World Report for 2011 or something like that because they didn't quite have the accurate number or something like that. And U.S. News and World Report punished them for this. But they've also been, I guess, getting rid of faculty. And if you look at their LSAT score and their GPA numbers, they're all dropping significantly, which is true for a lot of people. But it seems to be particularly bad at Brooklyn. So I guess to me, I'm thinking, what's going on? Why is this school dropping so quickly? Um, And they're having these problems and people are complaining about it. I'd probably just... Maybe I'd rethink, yeah, going to Brooklyn. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, I to me, the rankings are just so stupid. I can't believe people even pay attention to these things. Schools can go up and down in the rankings by 30 or 40 points in one year. So how? what are the rankings good for? You're in law school for three years. I mean, you don't even know what the school's going to be ranked by the time you graduate. I've seen students turn down scholarship offers you know, or go to a different school based on the rankings. And then the next year, the rankings have changed by 40 points one way or the other. Yeah, that's true. I agree. I, I But I, I guess I feel like they're not totally worthless. They are trying to quantify something. And 
at least like reading about Brooklyn, it seems like they kind of have weird excuses for why they didn't report this data. Uh, their unemployment numbers are dropping significantly, and they're paying teachers to no longer be there. This is the the what is it? The faculty buyouts. To to me, that sounds like a school that's in free fall. I suppose. I don't know anything specifically about Brooklyn Law School. I do know that there are schools around here. You know, Santa Clara Law just fell like a giant fall, free fall in the rankings. You could, If you were going to be a you know sportscaster about it, you would be yelling and screaming about, Oh, look at that. Did you see, you know, yeah. holy, it's now it's 137th. And it's like, okay, but you know what? It's the same school. It's in the same place. They're doing the same things there. Just because the ranking number changed doesn't mean that there had to be any substantive change in the school at all. Yeah, okay. So that's that, I guess that's what I feel like is actually happening is there, there's been this huge this sea change, right, in law schools. There, there, all these applicants are not coming to their doors, and so they're losing money, and schools are reacting in different ways. And some are trying to figure out how do we save money? Do we bring in less qualified students? Do we cut faculty? And so I think things are changing at these schools, and some schools are reacting to the change in probably the right way, whatever that is, and some schools are not. And so you show up, and you're getting a very different education than you would have three years ago. Sure, but I mean that can happen once you're already in the school. I just people just pay way way too much attention, I think, to the every single year ups and downs, and you know it's like looking at your stock portfolio every day. Yeah. Like, what are you even doing? You know, you should be thinking about this in much longer terms. You know, I could just imagine somebody at a school, they piss off us news somehow, and then they get fucked in the rankings. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, if you, if you choose not to play the game, basically, you know, us news is asking you for all this data. They want the data in a certain format. If you decide not to provide them that data, then you're all of a sudden going to like plummet in the rankings or be or be unranked now all of a sudden. I don't know. I'm just I'm super suspicious of the rankings. And I feel like Muhammad here is doing some really bad analysis with the like it's like he's doing math on these rankings, right? He's like, I would normally follow your advice, but whoa, 19. That's a big number. It fell 19. You know, mm -hmm. that's not a that is not a like um, qualitative description of the school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it's a it it changed in the rankings. It, I don't know. Just I feel like there's the top 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 schools in the entire world, and then there are a lot of law schools that will make you a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And a school that's ranked seventy eighth and a school that's ranked ninety seventh to me is just the exact same school. And, and like you said too, Ben, I mean, this idea of like, ooh, it's almost not in the top 100 anymore. Mm -hmm. Who gives a shit if it's 99th or 101st? Mm -hmm. That's, there is no difference there. Yeah. I get, I don't know, I get irritated. I got an email yesterday from a student who is wanting to go to Hastings. And his analysis is like, he's got a, a nice scholarship at like USF. And he said in his email, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but he's, he was also, it was kind of like kidding, just kidding, but not really kidding mm -hmm. sort of thing where he was saying like, oh, I want to go to Hastings so that I can be able to say, Hey, I go to Hastings. He said it with a, um, 
well, I'll say what he actually said. He said he wanted to be able to say, ha, I go to Hastings, bitch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's, it's like, okay, I get it. I mean, he, he sat through my LSAT class where I just drop F-bombs every night and it's like, I, I get it. We're buddies, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's fine. He's, he's not saying that publicly and he's not putting that on his uh, LinkedIn page or whatever, but yeah. And his name was what again? Yeah. Right. It's just, um, this idea that, oh, I'm going to go to Hastings now, so I'm going to be superior to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, across the bay, everyone at Berkeley is just looking at Hastings like, I would never go to that shitty school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everyone at Stanford is like looking down at that. And everyone at Yale is looking down at everyone. Mm-hmm. So why are you, I don't know. I just, I can't believe that people want to buy into this hierarchical kind of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And the rankings just play, they play into that. Yeah. So I guess maybe where we disagree is that, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like you are saying that the rankings provide no information or indication whatsoever. Whereas I'm saying, uh, this school has dropped 15 and 19 over the last two years. There is some discussion about it, but maybe this could be an indication of something. It might be the indication of nothing, but I would look into it a little bit more. Yeah. I'm not saying don't look into it and and sure it could mean something, but it mm-hmm. could also just be noise and it could be something very subtle. It could be something that's totally going to change next year. Mm-hmm. I think if you've been doing this for as long as we have, you'll, we know that schools bounce up and down in these rankings by 20 points, 30 points, 40 points, Back and mm-hmm. forth and back and forth all the time. Yeah. So, ooh, there's these winners this year and there's these losers this year. But next year, the winners and losers can be totally reversed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what's the difference? I mean, if you're going to go to Bl- Brooklyn Law School, you should not be going to Brooklyn Law School because of the rankings. You should be going to Brooklyn Law School because you want to be in Brooklyn. You agree with the mission of the school. You know something substantive about the school not just the number that's associated with them. Yeah, I agree with that. Look deeper. We're 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 agreeing on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to look at the numbers, that's fine. But if you're going to make your decision just based solely on the numbers, that is just really idiotic. I mean, you got to go you got to go deeper than that and figure out what's actually going on. Yeah. I think in a lot of cases the answer is nothing. If you if you went and asked the people at Brooklyn what was going on with the rankings, I'm sure you know, if you sat down with them at a at an admitted students day or whatever, I'm sure they would have plenty of substantive things to say about what's going on at their school and the future of their school and whatever. It, a lot more than just well our numbers are this and that. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would take slight issue with, with is that I do think you're saying that in most cases, there's probably nothing going on. And I think that's true the higher you go up the ranking, <laughs> going back to the numbers. But I think as we go down these these further and further down, especially like those that are not even ranked, I would be very afraid. I think these schools have a lot of stuff going on and they're just trying to get warm bodies in the door and there's a whole lot of shenanigans going on. That's why I don't think they should exist anymore. I just think that's true at almost every school outside of the top you know, 30 or 40. Well, yeah, but I think it's a matter of degree. Like some schools are going to have it together. Like I'm thinking of George Mason that's just close here. Yeah, they're looking for warm bodies, but I don't know that they necessarily need to stoop to the same degree of whatever um, to get people in 
to get rid of their good faculty because they're just costing them too much, things like that. Yeah. I, and I think that could have an impact on the, the school. So I would be worried about that, I guess. I, more information is always good, right? So if, sure, the rankings are a data point, that's great. Mm-hmm. They can mean mm-hmm. something. But it's yeah. a data point, and there's just a lot more investigation that needs to be done. Yeah. Okay. Here's another letter. Hi, guys. I've been listening to your podcast for the past few months. It helps me get through the stresses caused by my 120-minute round-trip commute to and from work every Monday through Friday. So I guess this is an hour commute each way. Yep. Thanks for keeping me entertained. I'm studying for the June 2016 LSAT, and I intend to apply to law school in the fall. I have a question regarding law school visits. Oh, yeah. I like this one. This is kind of a funny story. Yeah, I visited a T14 law school today to take a tour, sit in on a full class, and meet with an admissions counselor. Later during my visit, I met with the admissions counselor, who turned out to be the assistant director of admissions, to answer a few of my questions. Upon introducing ourselves, he asked me one, what my visit was; two, what class, or sorry, how my visit was; two, what class I took; three, who was the professor; and four, what was discussed in that class. <laughs> Unfortunately, I blanked out in this moment, and I wasn't able to remember the full name of my professor or explain clearly what was discussed in class. I feel like I gave the initial impression that I wasn't paying attention or that I wasn't prepared. After my moment, I had some of my questions answered and also had the counselor share with me his personal experience of law school and being a lawyer. He did most of the talking, but I think we were able to end on a positive note. The discussion lasted about an hour. Is my moment something that may hurt my admissions prospects? Am I overthinking things? What do you think? Okay, I don't think it's going to hurt at all because he talked to her for an hour? Like if he was really unimpressed and like, "Uh, this is useless, I think he would have ended it sooner. I think he was trying to sell her on the school. Yeah, I think based on just solely on the fact that they had an hour discussion and it seemed like it ended on a good note, I don't think that's going to be horrifying. I mean, I can see it being horrifying if it was a much shorter discussion and if you really just seemed like you didn't give a shit at all Mm -hmm. but you know nobody knows what's going on in a lot of law school classes right i mean the professor sometimes is the only one that has really any clue what they're they're actually doing plus you didn't do the reading before you went to that class anyway so you've got no background yeah you're not a lawyer you've never been you know how how do you sometimes they could be talking about some legal mumbo jumbo that you just really would have almost no ability to follow yeah so i wouldn't worry about that but it is kind of funny right it's it's an example of where maybe you do want to kind of take things seriously (laughs) if you're on campus (laughs) did did i ever tell you what happened my first day of law school uh, Mm, with the reading i don't know well so i come from an econ background which is a lot of math and i didn't take the reading assignment seriously which is of course totally stupid please do differently than me but um i showed up to my first class which i think was civil procedure and we had been assigned to read a case you know it wasn't even a long one it was like a page long and i hadn't read it and the first person the professor called on was mr olson i don't know why they are so formal but i said yeah and he said well what do you you know, what do you think of the reading? And I, I don't know why I decided to pretend that I had read it. He just had a heyday. It was just pure <laughs> entertainment, you know, like, oh, so are you saying that I can't, I, I remember the case had to do with some, like some, oh, 
it didn't have to do with an apple, but it was like this idea of getting a chance to have a bite at the apple a second time yeah. and you're not allowed to do that, you know, or there are circumstances, circumstances when you can, but I don't know. It was just like, he was just having fun with me. And then eventually it was like, you didn't have a chance to read this. Did you? And it's like, <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> like I am an idiot. And yeah, so that was, that was fun. And then my my next class, I was the first person called on again. And we kind of rotated with the same people. I think everybody was like, oh, here's, you know, here's the idiot. Let's see what he has to say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what happened in that class. At least it was like an easy question. So I answered it and moved on. Yeah. People are super afraid of uh, the Socratic method, right? They've seen the paper chase and they're, they're super afraid of getting uh, – called on or whatever in law school. I have some, uh, some thoughts about that. You know, one is they're not going to call on you very often. Some professors use the Socratic method better than others um, or more aggressively than others. I actually think that it's probably the best way to teach a room of a hundred people like that is to, is to use the Socratic method pretty seriously where Mm -hmm. everyone in the room has a chance to be called on randomly Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that means you have to do your prep because if you get called on it and you're not prepared, then it's really embarrassing. Yeah. But there's some things that if you're if you're really worried about that, there's some things you can do. One. Yeah. I mean, if you're prepared, that's going to be a lot easier. Public speaking generally. Right. If you know yeah. what you're talking about, then life is easy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing to remember for one L's or when you go into your one L year is that the professor's job is basically to keep asking you questions until you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. So there is no right answer in many cases is what I'm trying to say. So he's going to usually try to lead you towards some kind of area of uncertainty in the law. Mm-hmm. And so one thing to, I guess, go going in, you should just sort of expect that once you're in the hot seat, you're going to get to a point where you're going to say, well, we just don't know. <laughs> this is unclear. I don't know. And I don't know is a perfectly fine is a perfectly fine thing to say. Matter of fact, one line that I think works is, you know, you, you probably only get away with this once. But if the professor calls on you and asks you a question and if you can credibly say, I'm sorry, you know, Professor Johnson, I... I read the case, but I just don't know how to answer you. Mm-hmm. What can they say? That you're an idiot? Yeah. You know, that, and so I've, I saw people do that in class a million times, and it, it just always seemed to work. I mean, they just go, oh, okay, and they move on to the next whatever. Yeah, or they try to help you understand. Right, or yeah. they teach it to you, right. So yeah. saying I don't get it is totally fine. I mean, the the one thing that will piss them off is if, they ask you, did you read the case? And you say no. Mm-hmm. That they're going to, you know, potentially like want to see you after or you lie to them <laughs> and then they figure <laughs> out that you, you never yes. read it. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably not your best start there, Ben. But I'm sure you, you recovered. It was a good kick in the butt. <laughs> Can I talk about how professors suck at using the Socratic method? Sure. I had a professor. I had multiple professors. I thought this was so ridiculous. I had professors who would, they want to be nice. So they would use the Socratic method, but they would tell you in advance who was on call. Oh, that's useless. Either they would tell you exactly who was on call or they would tell you like, 
one third of the class is on call. Yeah, yeah, like A through G or whatever. Yeah, is on call this week. <laughs> and it was such a joke because it's just sensible. Law school, there's a lot of work. It's really boring shit. No one wants to read those cases. No one wants to be prepared to talk about these stupid cases. And so when the professor does that, like, oh, A through G, you're on call today. It's just guaranteed that anybody who's not A through G is not, you know, there are some people who are going to do the reading no matter what. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who are only ever going to do the reading when they're on call. And so you would just, I would look around the classroom and there'd be people just spacing out, you know, like they, they're, they're absolutely just shopping for shoes online. Yeah. Watching a UFC fight on their laptop. <laughs> I swear to God, I saw some people watching UFC on their laptop during class and it's like, well, what? I'm not on call. Yeah. And then you just totally tune out. You don't, cause you don't want to listen to whatever the other idiots in the class are even saying. Yeah. It's just like the exact opposite of what the whole purpose of the Socratic method is. Yeah. So, hey, law professors, pull your head out of your ass. I know you're trying to be nice, but that doesn't work. The, this, this, the whole point of the Socratic method is to scare people into doing their work. Yeah. While I'm on a rant about the reading in law school, I don't really think it's that necessary that you do all that reading. It, I think there's too much of just reading old cases. Oh. Oh, for sure. I mean, the skill is really trying to hone in on the salient points. And you can do that by re- getting good at reading those things and finding it yourself. Or you can uh, pay attention in class and figure out what the main main idea was that you need to take away from that. Yeah, you should also be doing practice exams, right? From like mm-hmm. almost the very beginning of the semester, you should be doing oh, practice, yeah. practice final exams. Because you can go get your professor's final exams for the previous years, and they're in the library. You can check them out. You can go get the actual exam. And so you should be looking at that from almost day one of the semester so that you can try to figure out what the important stuff is. You can also get an outline from somebody who just took the class like last year from the same professor. You get an outline of someone who got an A in the class, and then now they've got – so now you've got the notes – the cases are going to be barely changed from last year, if changed at all. It's going to be yeah. the exact same syllabus as last year. And so now you've got an outline and you've got the final exams. And maybe when you've got these dense reading assignments, you just don't have to read every page because you can look at what's on the outline. You can look at what's on, you know, what kinds of things were going to be tested on the final. You could read just the head notes, Right in Lexis or Westlaw, you can read just the sort of summary at the top that tells you yeah. what the case is about. Yeah. But I don't think you really need to slog through every word of all of those stupid cases, especially early in the semester too. Right? Because they, yeah. the professors like they love to take you through like, well, in the 1400s, mm-hmm. here's what you know, and here's Blackstone, and all, they like go through all the legal history. And I guess if you're going to be a law professor, maybe that stuff matters, but for real lawyers, you know, we don't care what the law was nearly as much as we care what the law actually is now. Yeah. And the exams don't really test you on what the law was. They test you on what the law is. So in a lot of cases, all the stuff that you even read about for the first month or six weeks of the semester, it's going to all just be like, well, and then we got to Brown versus Board of Education and everything changed. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's like all the shit that you've been studying for the past six weeks is no longer any good because now we have new law that actually is good now. And they, and here's where the modern law started developing. So 
I think one owls get super freaked out about all these stacks of reading, but I, I just don't even think you necessarily need to do all of it. Figure out, you know, look at it, figure out which is the important stuff. Well, here's the other thing is you have, you're, you're, you're in class for hours and hours, right? And there's discussion after discussion after discussion. And you have to decide what of this information am I going to remember? What is important for my final exam? And like what you were just saying, the value in finding those exams and then taking them, even if you don't know anything, is immensely helpful because now you know what you don't know. You're like, I don't know. What should I do in this situation? What what should I have written in this hypothetical legal scenario? And all of a sudden, when they start talking about that stuff in class, you're like, oh, I need to pay attention to this. This would answer my question. And maybe that will change throughout the semester as the law develops. But the point is, is you'll you'll be able to know what to focus on. Yeah, I would certainly, that's exactly why we want you to look at these old exams because you want to see what type of scenario you're going to be presented with on that day that you take your final and what kind of analyses you're going to need. And then as you take the class, then your ears can perk up when they start actually talking about (laughs) some shit that's the type of thing that's going to be on the exam. Yeah. Because boy, a lot of those cases, you know, the old cases are just nothing to do with what the situation is today or what they're going to actually test you on. Yeah. Also, your colleagues are going to say really stupid things. I mean, depending where you go to school, I suppose. But at my school, and you know, no offense to my friends that <laughs> I went to Hastings with, but god damn it, there was some bad discussion. You know, yeah. the professor just calling on somebody who has what well, we're one we're all one else. We're one else. We don't know shit. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I that was a shocking thing to me about the first year of law school where I couldn't believe how much time was allowed for just other 1L idiots like me Mm -hmm. to just rhapsodize about what they think the law should be or something like that. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you see the professor at the front of the room? You know, she Mm -hmm. went to Stanford Law School and she clerked on the Supreme Court and Mm -hmm. She is a an international legal scholar. Yeah. But I'm listening to you, this idiot sitting next to me. I'm listening to you ramble on about what you think the law ought to be. Yeah. What? I, I don't know. I And I guess it's, again, this is sort of like the professor doing a shitty job of the Socratic method. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, because you can get really brilliant legal scholars who are absolutely shitty teachers mm-hmm. and they're just like going through the motions kind of, you know, like they, they just show up and they've got their little seating chart and they just start asking people questions. And then they just like, it's like, Oh yeah. As soon as I start asking people questions, then I can just zone out for 10 minutes and just let these people just ramble and debate a bunch of nonsense. And I don't know. I was, you went to a better school, so maybe you didn't have that. Well, no, I think it's, it's true. It really depends. You're absolutely right about these brilliant people who are not necessarily good teachers. And I think there's also incentives here. I think they could be really good teachers if they wanted to be. But it's like, hey, I got to put in my time. I got to show up to this class. But at the end of the day, all that ma- all, their only actual involvement, I think, for most of these professors is at the end. They read your essay and they just give you a grade. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what happened. There you go. You know? 
Yeah. I mean, this is certainly not everybody, right? I mean, there yeah. were... <laughs> but there are a lot of professors, I feel like, who do fall in this category. They want to do research. They don't want to teach. Yep. Yep. And that for that reason, um, adjuncts are often better than your full professors, right? The full fancy professor that wrote the textbook is a lot of times a bad teacher mm-hmm. because they're just a like, legal academic and that's all they really want to do is do research. Some of yep. my best teachers were... I took a family law class with a guy who was just, you know, actually a family lawyer for 35 years Mm. and he's in court every day. And he was there because he just certainly didn't need the money. He was there because he just loved teaching. Yeah. And boy, was he a breath of fresh air, you know, because he just would roll in and tell stories from his career all day and it would be he was totally bringing the textbook to life you know because he was like well let me tell you a context in which this applies Mm -hmm. and he's telling this guy like got choked up more than once in the class because of you know some stories that he was telling about his clients and how Hmm. how you know they're they had gone through this horrible thing with their divorce or whatever and then it all worked out in the end and he's getting cards and letters from these people 20 years later and college invited to college graduations and shit. Oh, whatever. It's cheesy, but you yeah. know, he, <laughs> he, he was like a real actual lawyer and that was pretty cool because the law professors are a totally different breed. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's run through the rest of these questions after kind of fucking up the, interview with the admissions counselor but then kind of pulling it back this uh listener asks would it be a good idea to visit the law school again in the future it's only a 10 minute drive away sure why not i mean yeah if you if they have the time and day for you i mean you don't want to like go talk to that person again maybe unless it's just like five minutes because i think he already gave you a lot of his time but I think it can't hurt, especially if you if they're considering you or they put you on the wait list and you're like, hey, look, I'm really interested. Just wanted to ask a few more legitimate questions. Yeah, if you have genuine and thoughtful questions, I think those are always permissible. Yeah. You know, and always encouraged because they they want to see that you're interested in the school. They want to see that you're, you know, that you're a thoughtful person. So sure, good questions are the best thing you can ever do um is it a good idea to introduce yourself to the dean if you have the chance if so what sort of questions would you ask uh i don't know what do you think yeah just curious how you would get the chance my only would worry too would be like imposing yourself on someone who's very busy it can kind of have an the opposite effect of a positive impression yeah you'd really have to have a question I don't know what question you'd be asking the dean, that the dean is the one who would be answering it. Like if you're asking the dean questions that could have been asked to students, you know, or to (laughs) about the culture of the school or things like that that could have been asked to the admissions counselors, I think the dean would be sitting there wondering, why am I sitting here in this meeting with you asking me questions that are answered by other people who have more time to do yeah, this kind of seems like above the level that you really need to be doing business right i mean the dean is yeah. not likely to be the one who's going to be the deciding factor on your application anyway yeah the dean's got more important shit to do than look at thousands of applications so of course if you're at some event and 
you're rubbing elbows already. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with saying hi, but I, I don't know that it's like something that you need to have a hit list of, you know, I gotta go talk to the dean. What do we think about starting law school in the summer versus starting law school in the fall? So I don't know a whole lot about this, but I do have a student who was debating this and ended up starting in the summer for a couple of reasons. One was, uh, I think he was going to Fordham, I believe, or Cardozo. I can't remember now. But um, one, the admission standards for getting into the summer start program were lower. So he had a better chance of getting in if he applied and said he wanted to do summer start. The second thing was that I guess the school that was offering this was actually encouraging it to its applicants who had lower scores Mm -hmm. because they said that for the last two or three years that they had been doing it, they compared the success rates for the ones who started in the summer to the ones who started in the fall. And the ones who started in the summer had done better GPA-wise, which is not surprising at all, right? You start with a smaller group of people. You have more time. Things are, you know, you can think through things and then you kind of join in with the fall group. You have a head start. And so for the admissions reasons and for the GPA reasons, he said that that's what he wanted to do. And I think he was really happy with his decision. I'm not really familiar with these programs. Are they, is this just like a pre-law school program or is this actually like you're going to take your first class or two over the summer? From what I understand, you, you actually take classes. Like a real class, a real graded class that's going to be part of your GPA or whatever. That's right. But oh, it's, okay. But I don't think you're, it's not like your fall semester when you're taking five. I think you're maybe only taking like two or three. So it just spreads out the 1L classes basically. I think so. And okay. I think you're also, you're like, one thing he was emphasizing is that he's he was with way fewer students, which is not surprising because you're not having that many people start in the summer, but that just makes the classes smaller. It makes it a little safer of an environment to ask questions. I think it can just be an all around better experience. And I would even suggest it to people who don't have anything to do that summer meaningful to even if you're scoring pretty high, why not get an edge on the whole process before everyone else shows up? Yeah. I mean, it's probably an extra semester versus of worth of tuition, Maybe so, yeah. Right. So there's there's a reason not to do it. The pre-law programs, I usually feel like those things, they just seem like scams to me. You know? Mm. Uh, so you're talking about something different here. You're talking about like yeah. w- like more like uh, what is a pre-law program? Yeah, well, you've seen you've seen the the um yeah, just like a law school preview kind of thing where uh, okay. they'll te- it's like they're going to teach you how to brief cases. You know, they're going to teach yeah. you about the basics of a legal case and yeah. they're going to teach you. It, it's just sort of like all the stuff that they're going to definitely teach you during your 1L year, but they're going to teach it to you as a, in your like 0L summer mm-hmm. so that you can, yeah, get a head start. I mean, head starts are great. If you've got unlimited money, great. If you're like a really excited student and you want to be there, great. But if, is it necessary? I would say absolutely not. Law school is already just way too long and boring. So <laughs> you don't need to be there an extra semester. I mean, even the biggest nerds in the world are like sick of law school by the time they get through their 3L year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I can certainly see it for a student who has struggled academically in the past, maybe learning mm-hmm. differences, that kind of thing. I have a really good friend who um, she started law school in Southern California and at a private school and she struggled her first year 
And then they actually, it was really cool because she actually transitioned to part-time. She had been full-time and she transitioned to part-time. Mm-hmm. And when she transitioned to part-time, she was much better able to handle the the workload and the stress and everything. And I think now she's doing really great uh, as a part-time student. Hmm. So that's kind of a cool thing to think about, right? That if you, if you do have um, problems competing in the academic environment, that yeah. you might, that actually is a, argues in favor of going to schools that have more options. You know, I might ask those questions if I, if I had been somebody who struggled academically mm-hmm. thinking about that in advance, like, Hey, you know, can you tell me a story of somebody who struggled and how were you, were, were they able to still make it or did they just drop out or what? Yeah. Okay, how would you recommend going to public events such as lectures that are held by the law school so that you can get more firsthand information? My gut reaction would be yes to some. Um, I would go to the ones that sound interesting. I would also uh, go to a few, even if none of them sound interesting, just to talk to students and just get more familiar with the school. I mean, she's only 10 minutes away, or he. And so get that information but at some point, I think you're going to have diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so maybe one or two. Who knows? Depends on how interesting they are, too. Yeah, if it's awesome, then by all means, go. Schools will let you, a lot of times, they'll let you sit in on classes. Matter of fact, professors, if they're, if there's half half the seats in the lecture are empty, professors probably let you sit in on the whole semester if you wanted, right? <laughs> if you, if you like talk to them nicely and, yeah. and said, Hey, I'm really fascinated by this. Uh, I'm not a student here, but I sat in, you know, would it, I see there's a lot of empty seats because <laughs> yeah. you're not doing it for credit, right? Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything stopping you from, from learning a lot. You could basically be almost a student at the school you just wouldn't get credit for it. So mm-hmm. if you want to hang out and learn more, you can definitely hang out and learn more. There's nothing stopping you. My guess is that a lot of those things are going to be redundant, though. You know, the public events are going to be pretty redundant. Okay, last question from this reader, a uh, listener, sorry. Uh, how do admissions and scholarship prospects look for the year of 2016? Would you say that it will be better or worse than 2014, 2015? Well, we're already like halfway through this 2016 cycle. What do you what are you seeing so far, Ben? Yeah, I would say generally it's going to be roughly the same, but I do want to add, and I know we've uh, uh, debated this a little bit before, but since the December 2014 LSAT, the number of LSAT test takers has gone up every time. So it went up 1% for the December of 2014. It went up 4% for the February 2015, and then 7% for the June 2015, and uh, another 7% for that October 2015, and then it went up 2% for the, the June again. So uh, it's not a whole lot, but it is seems seems to be that there are more people taking the test, which means there's probably going to be a slight increase in applicants. Not much of a change. That's why I think there's not going to be much of a difference. But numbers seem to be going back up slowly. Okay. And yeah, I mean, I think it's still just a really, really good time to apply. If you want to yes. go to law school, which, you know, I'm telling you, don't do it. But if you do want to go to law school... <laughs> <laughs> then this is a great time to go to law school. It's Sorry, it, I, I just love that, Nathan. Don't go. That's <laughs> default plan, but 
If you're in the very small minority who does still want to go, despite all the advice we've tried to give you through hundreds of hours of the Thinking LSAT podcast, then this is a good time. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, man. I yeah, mean, I agree. Law, <laughs> law is a zero sum game, you know, and I think in almost almost every context, law is there's winners and losers. And it's a super highly competitive, aggressive field. And you've got to really want to get into that struggle. And you've got to really be realistic about the type of competition that you're going to face once you're there. And because yeah. you, otherwise you're going to get your ass kicked. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to be you're going to be a shitty lawyer for your clients because you're going to go up against people who are going to just destroy you because they work harder than you or they, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but they're better at the English language than you are. Yeah. And they're going to be able to build stronger cases because of that. And I, I'm not I'm sorry, but that's just the reality of the situation. So I'm fully I don't think I'm ever going to change my tune on I don't think that law is right for most people mm-hmm. and you got to be a special kind of like psychopath and if you are then I will do everything I can to help you get into law school and go kick ass and you would be exactly the kind of lawyer that I want to hire if I ever have to god forbid hire a lawyer I think I think our parents uh when they were professionals were professionals at a time when lawyers every single one of them not every single one but most of them were very successful were paid a lot of money and i think that those ideas take a long time to kill yeah there are still a lot of attorneys who make a lot of money but it's a it's a increasingly smaller percentage of the overall attorney population yeah and there's also the moral cost of it to me it's I don't know how doctors and lawyers got on the same like moral plane in our society. <laughs> Wait, they're on the same moral plane? No, they're not in my book, but at least they're mentioned in the same breath all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, doctors and lawyers, right? Oh, I just mm-hmm. hope my kid grows up to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I hope my kid grows up. I'm not going to have kids, but I hope my kid grows up to be a doctor, not a lawyer. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. doctors, you know, and you can say whatever that that profession has changed and oh, managed care. Oh, my God. OK, whatever. Doctors mm-hmm. go in every day and they help people, save people. <laughs> you know, doctoring yeah. is not a zero sum game. Yeah. Lawyering is um, boy, people are going in and they're fighting about things, you know, mm-hmm. and if if you're going to win, that means somebody else is going to lose. Well, and not only that. Keep this in mind, and maybe this is a good reason to become a lawyer. Somebody's going to lose, and it's usually both parties in the suit, and the lawyer wins because mm. they get paid no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is like business complaint number one, but it's also it's even worse in like family law disputes where people don't have a ton of money, but they're pouring money into their attorney. Yeah, and both sides are, and both attorneys walk away and say, well. You know, so-and-so lost, but really they both lost. Yeah. Yep. There's that old, um, I'm going to botch it, but there's like a, a a silly saying about how a solo practitioner in a small town, a, a solo practitioner lawyer in a small mm-hmm. town can make a good living, mm-hmm. but two solo practitioner lawyers in that, sma- in that same small town can both make a great living. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's pretty good. I haven't heard that before. Right? Yeah, because it's, well, I mean, any, yeah. di- any divorce, right? If there's only yeah. one lawyer and this sad couple goes in and wants to get a divorce and the, the one lawyer in town charges them a reasonable fee to manage the divorce, okay, great. But yeah. if it's the same couple and there's two lawyers in town and they each go to two different, they each go to a different lawyer. Mm-hmm. Now both lawyers are getting rich and it's going to be ugly. And yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we should change the topic. This is yeah. too, this is too, <laughs> too depressing. Okay, shifting gears. Blair writes. Hello, I am relatively busy because I'm still in school and I'm also trying to study for the June LSAT. So I've been listening to audiobooks on the LSAT when walking to class or driving to work. From what I've read, it's important to study from questions that are from real past LSATs, which both you and I are strong advocates for that position. Yeah. Blair is researching books. She found an audiobook called Beating the LSAT 2012 Edition. And Blair is trying to research where they got their questions. And it doesn't say anywhere on the materials that it's using real LSAT questions. It doesn't say that on their website. There's no contact information for the author. Blair wants to know, my question is, if you think this book might hurt me more than help me, I want to be consistent in studying LSAT generated questions. Love to hear what you think. So... First of all, the uh, the sample questions that she shared with us were not legit from what we could tell. Yeah, she sent us a couple of the questions out of the book, and neither of us recognized them, which is a really bad sign because we've seen lots of questions. Yeah. So I don't think they're using official questions, which would make me very nervous about the, uh, the uh, examples. The second thing is that we don't really know anything about what they're saying. I mean, they could be saying some valuable stuff that wouldn't hurt to um, emphasize while she's at the gym or commuting, kind of like people who listen to the podcast. But I, yeah, looking into this company, they do a ton of different practice tests that I've never even heard of. I mean, it's not, it's not just GMAT and stuff. It's like random stuff. So I would just steer clear of this with a 10-foot pole. I mean, I don't see how they could be at all very knowledgeable about the LSAT. They certainly could be, but I just would say it's not worth the time. Yeah, I looked at them quickly on Amazon, and the I can't remember the name of the publisher, but it's again, it was Beating the LSAT 2012 edition. And I looked at their like author page, and it seemed like they had a prep book for every different standardized test, and they were all sort of mediocre had mediocre reviews yeah and so one they're definitely not lsat specialists because they're yeah. doing every possible test and then two i mean the reviews for the stuff that they have done seems pretty bad so yeah yep. i probably would toss this one yeah listen to the podcast instead just start from yeah. the beginning and listen to the whole thing again yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that. People do that. <laughs> Some of our listeners are crazy, man. We I've have people more than one has said, "Yep, I'm on my, you know, third listen through." Yeah, no, someone told me that last night actually. One of my students, she said that she just started at the beginning and she said that it was going well and I said, <laughs> "That's good to hear. I have no idea what I said back then. I hope it's <laughs> hope it's legit." She said, well, you made a joke about Louis C.K. And so 
I like him. Yeah. That's funny. I endorse that plan. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. That's Blair. The only thing I see left on the agenda is to do one of these uh, logical reasoning questions. Yeah. Yeah. You want to do that? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. So this is a uh, June 2007 LSAT. It's freely available. If you just Google June 2007 LSAT, you will get this test for free. Um, section two, question number 18. And uh, yeah, Ben, you want to just uh read it for us okay so section two number 18 this is the one that starts with modern science yeah. right that's mm -hmm. we're on the same page okay yep. good so 18 says modern science is built on the process of posing hypotheses and testing them against observations in essence attempting to show that the hypotheses are incorrect sounds good to me do you have any reactions to that the lsat loves the scientific method. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like this question be so far just because it's, I feel like I'm going to get rewarded for understanding how the scientific method actually works. Yeah. I think that one word here might've been kind of surprising to students if they hadn't had a really decent, you know, science background. I mean, not that mm -hmm. I have a science background, but I do have a BS and I, <laughs> I took just enough science classes to have like an idea of how the scientific method works. But that word incorrect, mm -hmm. I get a sense. I get a. I get a sense that that's important because I think that many people who don't understand how science works would think that you would be trying to show that your hypotheses are correct. Mm -hmm. Sure, right. Yeah. But yeah. that's not the essence of how science actually works. How science works is we make a hypothesis, we think it's correct, maybe yeah. we even want it to be correct. And yeah. then we do absolutely everything we can to try to disprove it. Yeah. Right. And if we can't disprove it, then that's when we would say, oh, well, I think this really is true because, boy, we tried and it, we can't we can't falsify it. Yeah. And even then, it's a sort of a tentative acceptance. It's like, well, we might always be proven wrong sometime in the future. But for now, everyone's trying their hardest around the world who has any interest in this topic to show why I'm wrong. They're failing. So maybe it's true. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so first we just have a, hey, here's how science works. <laughs> just FYI, yep. if you didn't know, yep. welcome to the modern world. Yep. Nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. Hey, this is just what we were talking about. This is the motivation that brings people to, uh, I don't know, show why hypotheses are wrong. Yeah, and this apparently science scientists actually get famous if they can disprove something that is conventional wisdom, right? So yeah. um, we know now that the earth goes around the sun. Um, that's at least what we believe to be true. Yeah. But if some science, some scientist could somehow disprove like, Hey, no, actually you, we were, we've been wrong all this time. The earth doesn't go around the sun. <laughs> um, yeah. You would be the most famous scientist in history, basically. Yeah. I'm going to start working on that. Okay. Soon. It goes on to say, it is accordingly unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical of the widely accepted predictions of global warming. Okay. Well, so this is an example, uh, kind of like you were just giving an example, but a more modern one. There yep. is the conventional wisdom behind global warming. And this is saying, hey, it's not surprising that some scientists are skeptical of this conventional wisdom because i mean i'm kind of filling in gaps here but maybe because it will bring them 
recognition. Yeah, it so, just said nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. So that's what scientists do. They try to disprove things that we believe. The third sentence here is a premise. Mm-hmm. We have to accept that global warming is widely accepted, right? Yeah. So it's telling us now that there is a wide there are widely accepted predictions of global warming. So global warming then is the conventional wisdom. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it, because it's the conventional wisdom, it's unsurprising that some scientists are skeptical of it. Yeah. Because that's exactly what they're trying to do is disprove conventional wisdom. Okay. Yeah. Great. So then it goes on and says, what is instead remarkable is that with hundreds of researchers striving to make breakthroughs in climatology, very few find evidence that global warming is unlikely. Man, this is just like going down exactly what we anticipated. So they're saying in this last sentence, what is really remarkable is that no one has disproven it. Yeah, there's there's hundreds of them, you know, researching these issues. They would love to overthrow conventional wisdom and get famous. Global warming is the conventional wisdom. So there's hundreds of people trying to disprove global warming. And it's surprising, according to this author anyway, it's surprising or remarkable Mm -hmm. that very few of them are finding evidence against global warming. Taking that all in, I I just happened to glance down and I'm looking at the question now and it says, the information above provides the most support for which one of the following statements? This is an inference question or I think you would call it a must be true question. It's a question in which we're trying to figure out what we could uh, conclude on the basis of this. And I already have uh, some thoughts on that. Nathan, do you? Um, I could, but why don't you go ahead? You're, you're right that I would call this a, a must-be-true question. I wouldn't call it a most strongly supported question because I feel like that's a distinction that just doesn't even need to be made. Okay. Um, my analysis here would just be I'm going to find the boring, obvious one, the one that just is exactly what they were saying, the one that doesn't go further than what they were saying. And if all else is equal, I'm going to prefer a like weakly stated, safe, conservative, boring answer. Sure. So you said you're saying you you maybe have a prediction. Yeah, I guess based on what's what's being said here is saying that what is instead remarkable is that no one has found um, evidence that goes against global warming. So I'm thinking, oh, so maybe, maybe these widely accepted predictions of global warming are correct. Yeah. The most important word there is maybe. Yes. Right. For sure. Mm Because we, I don't know that these facts ever justify proving anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess we we can we can show the hypotheses are incorrect according to mm-hmm. the facts. We can overthrow conventional wisdom according to the facts, but we can't hardly ever prove anything to be true, or at least we don't know that we can prove anything to be true. Yeah, right. So, I, and I think scientists would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, right. That's, that's like ethos. Oh, and by the way, this is me absolutely bringing in outside knowledge of my understanding of how the scientific method works. Yeah. Right. I'm not shutting off all of that stuff. I, I, we've said that before on the podcast, but you don't just shut off all of your 25 years of education when you do this test. 
-hmm. If you understand the scientific method, they're not going to say anything about the scientific method that's not actually true. Anyway. By the way, I, I do make I do make a distinction between must be true and most strongly supported. Okay. Because I feel like there are definitely situations where students are coming to me and saying, I just can't accept this answer. And I'm saying to them, well, notice this question is not saying that it must be true. Yeah. It's just the one that's most likely to be true. And that gives them a light bulb and they say, oh, sure. so I can accept that. I will also do that, but mm -hmm. I will only do that at that point where the student is like, well, this one doesn't absolutely have to be true. And I say, sure. right, but it's the best, it's the best answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it does. They get, they did give themselves an out there by saying most support for, mm -hmm. but I think in order to find that answer, you can just get away with the must be true analysis. You yes. just find the one that's closest to a must be true. It's still the right answer. Yeah, and, and, and in most of these cases, the correct answer is something that yeah. must be true, even though they gave themselves an out. So. Right, exactly. All right, uh, answer choice A, most scientists who are reluctant to accept the global warming hypothesis are not acting in accordance with the accepted standards of scientific debate. What do you what think the? about this? <laughs> um, there's a lot of reasons to hate that answer. Yes. We don't know anything about most scientists who are reluctant to accept this hypothesis. In fact, we don't know anything about any scientist who is reluctant to accept this hypothesis. We, we know that people are out there trying to disprove it. Mm -hmm. But we don't know whether that even means that they are reluctant to accept it. Mm -hmm. Then that's just one minor thing. The whole second half of this answer choice, not acting in accordance with the accepted standards of scientific debate. Scientific debate was never even mentioned. Yeah. I don't even know what that necessarily means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A, a just seems like a very easy wrong answer for this type of question, especially. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting about this answer choice and the, you, you're, you're going after it in a very uh, analytical way, which is which is awesome. One thing I'd like to point out to people is that what you're saying is, hey, look, these particular topics were not discussed. So how the heck can we draw a conclusion about them uh, <laughs> if they weren't discussed, right? Yeah. And it's, it, that's, this is a good example, I think, of where the test is a lot easier than people make it out to be. When, mm -hmm. when you first start preparing for the LSAT, you don't even understand what the must be true question type really is. Mm -hmm. But boy, when you get the hang of these must be true questions, it's just so easy to get rid of an answer like A. The second they start talking about anything that wasn't mentioned, you know, any any new ideas in the answer choice for this type of question, any new ideas are just easily not the answer. Yeah. The thing about answer choice A too is that even if you're willing to be like a little loose with the language and say, hey, okay, well, they kind of talked about those who were skeptical. Maybe that's the same as reluctant. Sure, yeah. This answer choice is still dead wrong because it's going in the opposite direction of this passage by saying they're not acting in accordance with the accepted standards when it seemed like they didn't even talk about the accepted standards. So we don't even know, like you said, we don't even know anything about that. But the passage seemed to like these people right. who were skeptical or at least accept their existence and, and their role in the whole yeah. like 
scientific debate. Well, it, so, it says it's like the foundation, right? Modern science yeah. is built on the process of posing hypotheses and then attempting to show that they're incorrect. So we could say that that is the same thing as the accepted standards of scientific debate. Sure. Yeah. But then, yeah, you're right. A still goes backward, right? Yeah. You, need, you need to get rid of the word not there. Yeah. Um, so we got a lot of reasons to get rid of A. Bottom line here is there's, I think there's two levels to get rid of answer choices. Uh, there's on a very granular level, like the text itself. And there's also the um, just like big picture level. Yeah. And I think sometimes when I'm talking to students in class, they're focusing on one or the other. And really, you want to get good at both. You want to be able to see, uh, and it doesn't matter which one you use. If you see one first, focus in on that and get rid of the answer choice for that reason. But even if you see like the big picture reason why it's wrong, then get rid of it for that reason. But sometimes I think people only focus on one or the other um, or they only think about the possibility of there being one or the other. But really, there's two different ways to get rid of most wrong answer choices. Specific word, words or wording are wrong, or just big picture, the answer choice is going in the wrong direction. Yeah, and we, I mean, I would say more than two or three, right? You and I are going to have sometimes five and six ways to get to the right answer. Sure. So this yeah. is an example of where sometimes, you know, my students with my books, they're like, well, I got that one right. Do I need to read the explanation? And I'll say, well, I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> you'll, you might be surprised when you read the explanation that your way of getting there is not the only way to get there. And yeah. so it depends on, I guess, you know, how high your goals are. But a lot of times having multiple ways to get there is going to be the safest. Sure, because in different questions, there's going to be different uh, things that stick out. All right, so B, um, most researchers in climatology have substantial motive to find evidence that would discredit the global warming hypothesis. It's on the right track. Yeah. It's going in the right direction. It seems like a pretty good fit with the given facts. Um, yeah. If I wanted to like link it up, I would go back and I would say, well... You know, um, we have a premise that says that nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. Yeah. We have another premise that says that global warming is widely accepted. So then the substantial motive that B is talking about could be that recognition. Sure. And to find evidence that would discredit the global warming hypothesis, which is conventional wisdom, if you disproved it, you would get recognition, which there's your motive. And B feels like a pretty good fit to me. Yeah, I would say um, big picture. This seems like a good answer and I would keep it open. But there's one thing I really, really hate about this answer. Most? Most. Yeah. Because I don't feel like that was ever discussed. Um, they talk about hundreds of researchers, but I don't know how many researchers there are in the world. I guess I would just say that, you know, most only means 51% or more. Yep. So it doesn't. It doesn't say all. If it said all, I, that might be enough to just conclusively eliminate B. Yeah. Most means okay, more than half. And when I look back at the facts, it it does seem to suggest that if you were a climatologist, if your whole job is to disprove hypotheses, and if if the pinnacle of your field is to overthrow conventional wisdom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then it does seem like no matter who you are in climatology you would have evidence or you would have this motive 
yeah to try to find evidence that would discredit the hypothesis yeah i it's i would definitely keep this answer choice open okay i'm just saying that i would cross out a and i would keep b open but i'd have a chip on my shoulder sure like i'd be worried about that word most yeah and i'd be looking for another answer choice that might work and then compare the two if there was another version of b that just said some instead of most slam dunk we would quickly get rid of b and go with the one that said some yeah yeah but i i think we have to leave this open for now oh yeah no and i totally agree okay. i because i um i would definitely leave it open because it's going in the right direction okay. all right c there is evidence that conclusively shows that the global warming hypothesis is true <laughs> okay so this is this is kind of uh like my prediction but it it's it's still dead well it's way too strong Way too strong. It's way too specific by saying there is evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, there isn't evidence that conclusively shows anything. There's a lack of people disproving this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it says very few find evidence against global warming. Yeah. But that's not the same thing as saying there is evidence that conclusively shows that global warming is true. Yeah, I don't I don't take issue with that there is evidence as much because I could I could feel I could see someone saying, look, the fact that no one has disproven it is some evidence. Sure. Okay. That is in itself evidence. Yeah. But okay. The I completely agree with you. The conclusively is just absurd and ridiculous. It's a great example of a type of thing that you would very rarely see in the correct answer on a must be true question. Right. Yes. You would su- this is super common type of thing that would be in a wrong answer choice and give you reason to say, hey, conclusively shows. Shows means proves. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we have yeah. evidence conclusively proving that the global warming hypothesis is true. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all believe that if you're not an idiot, I think we kind of all believe that, hey, if the bulk of scientists think this is true, then it probably is true. But that's yeah. not the same thing as conclusively shows that it's true. Yeah. C's out. So okay. A's out. B's open. I have a chip on my shoulder with B. Yeah. C is gone. D. Scientists who are skeptical about global warming have not offered any alternative hypotheses to explain climatological data. Okay. So this is also like dead because of a word. Any. Any. Yeah, we we just don't know this, right? We're looking for something, again, the very simple, basic, like, must be true analysis would be, we're looking for something that we know has to be true and can't possibly be false. Yeah. And D is like, hey, nobody has ever offered any alternative hypotheses. <laughs> and we have, we just have no evidence to support that. We don't know no. what hypotheses might be out there. Yeah, and they even suggested there's all this incentive to create them. Maybe they haven't done anything to disprove global warming, but people... Well, they haven't found evidence to say that global warming is unlikely, right? But they could have yeah. a million alternative hypotheses. Yeah, I can come up with one right now. You know, aliens are shooting us with light rays. Perfect, yep. That's one yeah, of those, yep, Martians with their <laughs> space rays. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we have one out there, so this is wrong. Uh, although I guess I'm not a scientist who's skeptical about global warming, but uh, definitely wrong. So E, research in global warming is primarily driven by a desire for recognition in the scientific community. This is also problematic because of 
a strong word. Yeah, I hate the word primarily there. Yeah. And again, that's a, a word that's a flat a red flag for this type of question. It it just it would have basically had to have said this is the primary reason. Yeah. It, it would have had it's you know, it did say nothing brings more recognition than overthrowing conventional wisdom. Yes. But just because it brings more recognition doesn't mean that that's the primary reason why you are doing this in the first place. Yeah. So what this is, is it's like this is the primary thing maybe that brings you recognition. But how does that translate over into the primary thing that motivates you? Yeah. You may not be motivated by a desire to get conventional wisdom. No, you could be there for the money. You could be mm -hmm. there because you want to change the world. You could be there because you don't know what else to do and you're bored. You know, <laughs> you want to wear a cool sweater with leather patches on the elbows. That's yeah. why you're a professor. We don't, we just don't know what. We do know that there is a possible way to get recognition. And I think we can probably assume that some people probably want recognition. Mm -hmm. But we can't go so far as to say this is the primary reason why anybody is researching global warming. Yeah. It's just kind of silly, right? At a certain point, you get to, you get tuned into these must be true questions. And then you're like, well, come on. We don't, we can't yeah. prove that. Yeah. So here, this is actually comparing answer choices B and E. B and E, in my mind, have two strong words. One is most in mm -hmm. B and primarily in E. But the problem is that. B has most with the right content. E has essentially a word that's sort of like most, but in the wrong with yeah. the wrong content. Well, I mean, primarily is also it's it's singular, right? It's mm -hmm. it's like it's num gets you to number one. Yeah, it's this is the number one reason why mm -hmm. people research global warming. And uh, if it said partially, <laughs> maybe we would be able to pick E. Oh yeah, that would be a lot. That would be a lot tougher. Right, like some people are driven by desire. Oh, sure. okay, maybe we can yeah. say that. But primarily, like all research in global warming is primarily driven by desire for recognition. That's way yeah. too big, way too strong. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. I think I think B has that potential problem with most. If most said all there, we would have a big problem with B. Mm -hmm. But I think it's better than A or C or D or E. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, I'd pick B and move on. Yeah, same here. Um, probably wouldn't have taken that much time to do it, right? It's like no. um, <laughs> when we're going through these questions, I think hopefully the listener is getting this by now, that we're really looking for reasons to dismiss answer choices. Yeah. I mean, one out of five of these is correct. That means four out of five of these are wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when we're reading these answers, we're not trying to help them out. We're not trying to make them the right answer. We're looking to make a little tick mark across letter A to get rid of it. And yeah. we found the tick mark against A. We couldn't really find it against B. We were skeptical, but we couldn't really eliminate B. Mm -hmm. But then when we read C, we would have made a little tick mark. And when we read D and when we read E, we would have made little tick marks across the letter there. And then yeah. we would have looked back and said, well, it ain't A, C, D, or E. And B, I, I don't even think at that point we would have needed to reread B, right? It would have just been like, well, I, I hated these four and there's only one left. And I did read it. I was not able to eliminate it. So that's the answer. Yeah. 
Cool. And con- confidently so, because, I mean, that's how it always is. It's the best of five. Yeah, and sometimes the best has problems, but it's just not as horrible as the other four. Yeah. Right? It's actually yeah. probably more common. Wouldn't you say it's more common to have four really bad answers and one kind of bad answer that's the right answer than it is to have two good answers mm-hmm. where you're like, boy, I love both of these. <laughs> I mean, that to me, that doesn't happen very often. Mm. Yeah. I think it would be more common that I would like kind of dislike the one that I was going to have to pick mm-hmm. than it would be to have like, oh boy, these are both really good. How yeah. am I going to choose? <laughs> it's, it's, that, that just rarely happens. If that's happening a lot, you probably aren't doing it right. Yeah. I think it's something about the nature of just language too, right? It's always going to be a little imprecise unless you're super strict with what's, what you say. Yeah. But we do need to be, I think when we're anal- analyzing these, we need to be pretty strict, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, so you're going to reveal those problems. Yeah. You, you need to, I think it'll be a lot easier for you if you just start with the assumption that the answer choice you're reading four out of five times is going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. If we, if we start with that idea of like, Hey, it's probably not you. Let me see if I can eliminate you from contention. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much better way of analyzing the answer choices than the like, Oh, Hey, Hey, I hope you're the answer. I'm, I'm looking for the right answer. So I'm going to like try to read a, in a context in which a will be the right answer. Yeah. That, that's definitely not the right way to do it. Yeah. Cool. Well, anything else for today? No. Did you have anything? Not really. How's uh? Is it springtime yet in DC? It is. It's really nice. In fact, when I was driving in today, I saw some cherry blossoms, which is an obsession around here. Sure. Um, I think they were brought to us from Japan a long time ago, but uh, they look really cool for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, I don't know if I what I was looking at were cherry blossoms or something that looked a lot, a lot like them, but. Uh, yeah, it looks pretty cool around here. And actually, I was even thinking this two days ago. Uh, I went outside at like 10 a.m. and I was like, wow, it's such a nice day. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is Virginia. We have this for about three weeks of the year. So it's cold, cold, cold. Then it's super nice. And then it just becomes hot and muggy. Yeah, that's how my time on the East Coast was, too. It was like there were a few weeks in the spring and a few weeks in the winter or in the fall that were yeah, just yeah. awesome. And yeah. then uh, the the muggy summers with like thunderstorms and stuff, which is kind of cool, but the humidity is not. The humidity just sucks. Yeah. And then the long frozen winters. Well, enjoy the springtime while it lasts, <laughs> Ben. Come to the nation's capital. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, and there's politics always. Good times. Well, I think that's it then for today. Okay. Thanks cool. for listening. Um, please email us questions you can tweet me at in fox you can tweet ben at strategy prep you can tweet the show at thinking else at you can email both ben and me at the same time by emailing help at thinking mm-hmm. uh, i am still teaching a weekend class coming up soon april 23 24 in los angeles registration is open on my website for that foxlsat.com anything else we need to talk about ben no that's it fantastic I will talk to you again soon. Okay. See ya.